0: Welcome to the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour. Driven by Sanderson Ford. Your weekend wake up tradition. It's Rosie on the House. Oh,
1: yeah. And a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning to you. If you were waking up about 900 years ago, well before the Parker Dam, <laughs> if and, the, was. and the Havasu Basin, you'd most likely be along, among the most warlike tribe of the Colorado River tribes, the Mojave Indians who expelled the Maricopa tribe, pushing them inland. But then turned around and gave it right to the wavy people who moved in around 1800 and now the name of that entire valley, the Chimewavy. Now we don't hear that name a lot because that's all the California side and everything on Arizona sides
2: have a Sioux. I have to say I've never heard that, that term.
1: That was the first time and a little bit later we're going to have the director of the Nautical Spa and Resort and he's going to Help us with the correct pronunciation. That led me to an interesting (laughs) 7 o'clock hour. We need to find somebody that can pronounce all the correct landmarks that have an Indian name and what their
2: meanings are. How interesting would that be? Well, let's just get Marshall Trimble in here with his book, (laughs) Roadside Names of Places of Arizona. He knows all that? (laughs) Yeah, he wrote a book about it. (laughs) I don't know if he remembers it, but... (laughs) Lake Havasu City sits
1: in Mojave <laughs> County, the largest county in Arizona, fifth largest in the country, 13,000 square miles. It's one of four original counties created by the Arizona Territorial Legislation Assembly long before statehood. I never
2: knew that. I would have bet money that Coconino was the biggest county in Arizona.
1: They're right behind. I mean, it's, it's I think, less than 1,000 square miles difference. Huh. That's pretty close. It's the, considered the reddest county in uh, Arizona. The last time it went to a Democratic presidential nominate candidate was LBJ in 1964. And think about that. Who was LBJ's Republican opponent?
2: Goldwater one.
1: Goldwater. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so the only time it goes blue is when there's a, a red
2: opponent a from
1: Arizona. But you know how those rule boys are. They they never have much mind for big city hot shots. I guess they just thought... Texas guy would be better. I don't know, but it was only 152 votes. It went to LBJ. There's 45 ghost towns in the county of Mojave, and you know you've entered Mojave on your way to Vegas when you see the town of Nothing. That starts Mojave County, and you're in it all the way to the Nevada state line.
2: Well that's when it'll go blue again is when they start counting those votes. <laughs> when the when the ballot boxes at the ghost towns open up again. <laughs> Reminds me of
0: the dead rolls in Louisiana. Yeah, All those dead yes. people that voted. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's been known to happen. <laughs> Lake Havasu City is one of those towns in Arizona that if you never get off the main freeway, State Route 95, you never really get to see the town. Just off the corner of it on London Bridge Road, you get the Lake Havasu Museum of History that's open on Saturdays during the summer till 2 o'clock. It's a featured city of our Arizona staycation. Our winners actually just got back from a trip there. They went during the week. So we'll have them on next week, a little bit of preview about their stay there and uh, one of the things you can sign up for your Arizona staycation at House dot com slash travel AZ. We just picked next week winner, so now we're drawing for August. Yes, right? and August. that's Cottonwood. Cottonwood, in Cottonwood. August. Oh, nice. So, well, despite our efforts of keep Cross on the couch campaign, something that we started when we had Jim that's Cross right. on on April thirteenth, keep Cross on the house or keep Cross on the couch. He. Uh, as Arizona's fire reporter, he's, he's actually been quite busy. Sadly, the human-caused fire of the Woodbury is now the seventh largest fire in the state history, up to 80,000 acres today. Gosh. Bruce, speaking, speaking Bruce Hafner of, posted a,
2: gosh. just a heart-wrenching picture
1: of it from the S- air.
2: Speaking of resurrecting the ghost towns of Mojave County, I'd like to resurrect the Lynch squads. And anybody's campfire that burns 80,000 acres of my state should be lynched. And I'm, and I'm a peace-loving man. But that that really chaps my behind. And I don't know what the consequences for that are,
1: but if that's 80,000, <sighs> listen to what happened to this 16-year-old boy from Glendale who pleaded guilty to starting three fires in the Black Mesa Ranger District in the White Mountains. Together, they burned about 12 acres, so not big.
2: $75,000 he was ordered to pay. I wonder what happened to the two kids out of Tucson that started the Wallow Fire, or the woman that started the Chetisky Fire. I think they let her off. And how about the firefighter that started the rodeo fire? I think he went to prison.
0: (laughs) We also had some kids that were playing with fireworks up here in Phoenix that started a fire on the side of the mountain they got caught pretty quick though
2: well and then the happy jack fire last year was started by a campfire for a couple people down in the canyon when when the when it was closed to, to camping and closed to fires and they burned what 60 homes oh. gosh
1: so pay attention while you're out there Coconino firefighters had an interesting challenge and used drones to solve it there was a fire that was around a world war ii era military training that still had live artillery so they couldn't go in there to back set fire because it's restricted so they used drones to drop ping pong size explosives to start the backfire wow <laughs> man oh man use of te- modern technology and this week there was a big uh, the national uh homeland security convention was in phoenix this week at the convention center and phoenix firefighter were most eager to show off their brand new radios these new high they're they're
2: interagency aren't they they are
1: so then they can hear and monitor the police so they know it's as fast as they can get in there to do their medicare so and on today's radio program we actually have a special guest that was lined up by a mutual friend of our guest and rosie his name is john smack and he kind of after the accident, he kind of took over your Save the World Committee as point man (laughs) and uh, kept everyone. And when we realized this may not be a two- or three-week thing, it may be a two- or three-week month, he said, Romy, what can I do to help? And I said, you know, the 7 o'clock hour, it's new to Rosie on the house. We've only been doing it four or five years, and we could never decide what to do with it. And Rosie really liked that because it just fed to his impulse of the week. That's right. And I said, and I don't have time to sit around and think about what we're going <laughs> to fill that hour with, so feed me some guest ideas. And he said, well, look, I heard you all talking about cotton the other week on your Farm Fresh broadcast. I've got someone that knows more about cotton in Arizona, if you want to have that interview on just what cotton has done to develop the state. His name is Jesse Curley, and he's sitting here with us this morning. Welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here this morning. So what? Uh,
3: tell, talk to me about cotton in Arizona well cotton and, and you know it's one of the the five C's and it's uh, it's a big part of the history of Arizona and uh, has uh, played a big part in the economic development of, of Arizona over the years truthfully it's not as big a crop as it used to be I mean when I moved here in the uh, in the late uh, 70s there was around uh, you know uh, 800,000 acres of uh, cotton in Arizona at that time. Today, we're down to about 250,000 acres. So it's not what it was. Uh, whether it'll come back, that's another story. But uh, it's all economics and the water situation in Arizona and a lot of these things. But,
1: uh, well, what brought cotton to Arizona to begin with?
3: Well, uh, regular upland cotton, which is the majority of cotton grown in the world in the United States, was grown here in probably in the uh, 1880s started growing but my specialty was Pima cotton and Arizona has a reputation and people think of Arizona they think of Pima cotton and uh, it was really started here in Arizona and it's the best quality of cotton in the world it's uh, renowned for its uh, length of the fibers and the strength and that was really brought here by the Goodyear Tire Company and uh, Mr. Litchfield out at Litchfield Park, and they br- came here in 1916 to start growing Pima cotton, and I, that's a very interesting story. I think of how that how that developed and why it developed.
1: Well, we never have enough time, but can yeah. can you give me like a, uh, a three minute
3: preview of that till uh, okay. the next commercial break? Well, <laughs> well, uh, back in those days, and for a long time, uh, car tires and truck tires were made with, the, you know, was rubber around cotton. Today, it's steel or whatever they use. They don't use cotton, I don't think, in tires anymore. But in those days, cotton was a very, very important ingredient. And in, in about, I think I heard like five pounds of cotton were in each tire. And they needed a very strong cotton. They were using Egyptian cotton at the time, mainly because it was a long staple, very strong cotton. World War I came along, and they needed—they uh, had a restriction on the uh, Egyptian cotton coming into the United States. So they needed more of the Pima cotton, and there was very little grown in uh, Arizona at that time. So Goodyear sent Mr. Litchfield out to—he was a young engineer with uh, Goodyear—sent him out to Arizona in 1916 to try to get people to grow more Pima cotton. Basically, he wasn't very successful in getting it done, so they decided that uh, we'll have to do it ourselves. So Mr. Litchfield had the responsibility of, I think he bought 24,000 acres in 1916 out here, around Litchfield Park and some of it around uh, Chandler, Dr. Chandler's uh, farm. And they started growing Pima cotton. Uh, They set up two big communities. They built 16 gins. Uh, they hired a tremendous amount of people basically uh, set up two communities and started growing uh, Pima cotton for the war effort, too. So they had their, their raw material for their tires. And, and it was for the,
1: for the tires. It's, you think cotton so much today, it's, it's our fabric, it's our clothing, but it wasn't what it was being used for then. It was for
3: tires. That's what Goodyear. Now, they were using Pima cotton for apparel and other things, too, at that time. But the Goodyear was uh, mainly for, for tires. And uh, so it started an industry out here that developed. And, of course, Arizona became the largest uh, state and basically the only state growing Pima cotton for a long time.
0: Tuned up and rolling, it's the Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Board. We
1: were walking in
0: high cotton, old times that are not forgotten,
4: those fertile fields are never.
1: You know, I almost said you we're going to be talking cotton. Gary, make sure you've got high cotton. I'm like, you know what? I'm not even going to have to open my mouth. He's going to.
0: <laughs> I always check with Skyview before the show, and Wayne loves Alabama. And he just got finished uh, coming back from a trip in Las Vegas. He said he loved the
1: show. The show was great. So
0: there you go, Wayne.
1: <laughs> the Mark, Wol- Mark Wilmer pumping station is located at the Parker Dam and is the beginning of the 336-mile journey of Central Arizona Project Canal. But who is Mark Wilmer? Many people say he's Arizona's biggest unhung, ser- unsung <laughs> hero, and known as Arizona's water master. He was a point man in what is still to this date the longest court case hearing. It went from
2: 1952 in the Supreme Court, to 1963. And we were on the very verge of losing that court case. Wilmer took it over, reversed the whole direction that the case was going, and won it.
1: And it's still uh, his his law office, Wilmer and Snell, or Snell and, Snell Woomer, and Wilmer, is still is still in operation today. So here's the true his or false... His biography is a good read. Here's the true or false trivia question. That pumping station pumps water, 800 feet vertically up into the mountains and drops into a tunnel and that starts to flow to pump that water it's six 66,000 horsepower pumps each requiring 50 (laughs) megawatts of power true or false that's that's more power than lake Havasu city uses on its hottest day true or false if you think that's true Text TRUE to 411 if you think it's false. Text FALSE to four one one nine two three. The pumps use more power than the city of Lake Havasu. Now, the city of Lake Havasu is about 40,000 people. That's a lot of buildings. Yeah, so it is. A lot, a lot of air conditioning. A lot of air conditioning. We'll pick a random right winner and send you passes to Arizona State Parks. Uh, good for any of the 35 Arizona State Parks, including the newest one, Havasu Riviera in Lake Havasu City. You can download the app and take it with you wherever where you're going on your Arizona staycation. Back to Mr. Jesse Curley and our cotton uh, topic. We had a great preview in the last segment about uh, Litchfield and Chandler and Goodyear. These were all people. <laughs> well, maybe not Goodyear. Um, was it was Goodyear after a man's name? No, I don't think so. I, uh, hang on, I don't think the mic's on. There you go. <laughs> but Chandler and Litchfield both were
3: people right what's your history I, i've got an incredible bio on you here well uh, i uh, grew up in a little small town in texas and uh, very near louisiana uh i, I went to texas a m university by the way we beat lsu uh, last year oh, in football here we go. Uh, rosie <laughs> here we go. but uh anyway I, when i finished school i went to work uh, for the company in lancaster pennsylvania and was sent to Atlanta, Georgia, and not too long after that, I went to work in the textile industry for the uh, textile industry itself as a uh, public relations kind of a lobbying activity with the textile manufacturers, and that's how I got into cotton. I was worked there for about seven or eight years and got to know a lot of people in the cotton industry uh, from all over, from uh, all of the cotton belt, from all the way from Mississippi to California. And they offered me a job in Arizona with Supima, which was the organization that promoted uh, uh, American Pima cotton. They did public relations. They, we basically uh, developed markets for Pima and that kind of thing. So that's what I did for 35, 36 years working with Supima. Um, I retired about three years ago, and now I'm working as a consultant for the uh, actually for the country of Egypt. Interesting. That, that, yeah. That's buying
2: property in Imperial Valley. Who, Egypt? Right. <laughs> are they? Well, isn't it oh. Saudi
3: Arabia and Egypt? that well, are buying I, all that I, land down Yuma? I know, I know uh, Saudi Arabia, I, I oh. know, was. Oh. They were going to grow. Yeah, they were growing things down there and then exporting, of yeah. course. That's right. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that Egypt was. They, oh, might, okay. they might have been. Oh. I, I, I wouldn't say that they, they wow. are not. But, I may have my Middle East yeah, countries they, mixed they, up. Do, <laughs> they don't have the money that saw, the Saudis have, so I'm not sure. <laughs> But anyway, that's a very brief history. Uh, as I said, I grew up in Texas, but I've been here for 40 years. This is home.
1: And you shared with us during the last break, you've got a second home. You're going to go enjoy the uh, hot Arizona weekend up in the cool mountains and smelling ponderosas.
3: Yeah, to try to get up to Flagstaff for a few days and uh, then go back up over the 4th and with all of my uh, my kids and my grandkids. So looking forward to that. And in your time
1: uh, and and profession, you were a member of a lot of different associations and uh, the Rotary Club and a lot of community outreach.
3: Right, yeah. I've uh, been a member of the Phoenix Rotary Club for probably 40 years or so and uh, different organizations, different cotton organizations and uh, uh, things like that, yes.
1: Well, Jesse Curley's sharing a little bit about Arizona cotton here with us at Rosie on the House. This is our 7 o'clock hour, our Arizona staycation hour. It's all things Arizona related. We focus on the city of wherever our staycation destination is that week. And it's Lake Havasu City this month. All, all month long, we've been talking about Lake Havasu. And the answer to your question, true or false, does the 66,000 horsepower pumps that pumps water out of Parker Dam into the CAP, use more energy than Lake Havasu City on its hottest day? That is true. If you answer true, watch your phone. We'll pick Mm -hmm. a random right winner during the uh, news broadcast and send you two tickets to Arizona State Parks.
0: Cruising through the Arizona Hour with Sanderson Ford and Rosie on the house.
3: And now more.
1: On a beautiful Arizona Saturday morning to you, talking cottonous Arizona hour and looking out the window, there isn't a cloud in the sky. you we were just enjoy sitting back and watching clouds pass by and play with your kids. You know, what can you pick out of the cloud formations? Sure. I was doing that. <laughs> it makes me think of the one time I did that with Remy. A plane was coming across. I said, Remy, where, where do you think that plane's going? He sat up at me, looked at me in the most matter-of-fact way and said, the airport. <laughs> Dad, the <laughs> airport. Good, good answer, Sonny, is going to My next airport. question
0: would have been, now, what gate is he going to be uh, parked at?
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, the well, first time I took you on an airplane ride, the first question out of your mouth was, how'd the clouds get down there? <laughs> how'd that do that? <laughs> I think just about every American hasn't
1: done that and enjoyed cloud watching. But in the West, where we've got big open skies and big open spaces and lots of mountains, We also uh, name likeness of rock formations to different things. Off the top of my head, Camelback Mountain, and it's got the Praying Monk. Praying Monk. uh, Mummy Mountain. uh, Frog Rock out in Congress. Weaver's Needle in the Superstition. uh, Four Peaks. Hmm. In Lake Havasu, they have the Sleeping Indian, best seen at night as the sun is setting. It's the silhouette of an Indian warrior laying on its back by three mountain ranges coming together. You can uh, travel out. There's actually even Havasu nighttime cru- sunset cruises. Uh, it'll, take, it'll hold up to six people on a little pontoon boat. It'll take you out. It's about six nautical miles north of Thompson's Bay, and you get to sit there and look back to the, you know, the sun setting in the west, and you're looking back to the east in the Arizona mountains, and you can see the sleeping Indians. Oh. I got one i want to go to lake havasu now <laughs> <laughs> the, the, i've really i've been there many times and learning more about all the, the research it's we have to go
2: back now and experience all these other things that we cover all the Sunday. things you've learned about <laughs> yeah. I, li- I like the south end of the lake at havasu springs that's your place right located right there in the canyon well it's the best water skiing because it's the one place the lake is protected from the winds so you got great water skiing back through the canyons
3: Hmm. I love that area.
1: Water in Arizona. That's a big part of why the cotton industry has changed a little bit here in the state of Arizona.
3: That's correct. You know, Water has always been a, and is still is a very big issue in any agriculture, and particularly in cotton. And, uh, so it's a precious commodity. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the production of uh, cotton in Arizona has declined and there's several reasons. A uh, water situation is one. Economics is a, is a major one because uh, cotton um, yields have certainly increased. But uh, the price of cotton today is, uh, and it varies, but it's in the 60, 70 cent range right now. That's certainly not profitable for anybody. Uh, so that's a, that's a factor. Uh, But the one thing about it is that Arizona, uh, when I came here, was probably getting about two, two and a half bales an acre. That was a good yield. Today they're getting about four plus bales an acre, so that has certainly helped. But again, the economics uh, are very tough for growing cotton in Arizona. It's the most expensive place. Probably Arizona and California, the really? two most expensive places to grow cotton. Oh, yeah. Because you've got to pay for the water. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have the great weather. You have the sunshine. You don't have to worry about that. But look, over in uh, Mississippi and places like that, they have some irrigation. But generally, they depend on, uh, you know, rainwater. So, Or if they have water, it's very cheap water compared to Arizona so land is expensive in Arizona waters expensive so it's a very expensive place to grow uh, to grow cotton.
1: Now you miss- mentioned Mississippi but that Pima cotton you know was known in Arizona is there any reason they don't does, does it not grow in more humid climates does it not produce as well?
3: No a, a Pima is really likes a, a, a very warm dry climate. I mean, the Egyptian cotton is, you know, along the Nile, the same type of weather conditions, basically. But it likes a dry, very hot desert-type climate. So it does very well there. And that's basically—they've tried—they've made attempts to grow it back in the southeast, but hadn't been very successful. Uh, And cotton, Pima particularly, the quality is everything. It has to be the highest, highest quality because it sells for about— you know, almost double right now. Double the price of regular cotton. Regular cotton today, seventy cents in Arizona. Pima is probably a dollar, thirty dollar, forty dollar, fifty a pound. So it has to be very high quality, and you don't want rain on it and things like that. In the southeast, you know, about harvest times, you'll start getting rains and those kind of things that deteriorates the quality of pima. So it's uh, California and Arizona and extreme west uh, El Paso region of Texas is where most of the Pima's grown. And today, 90, 95 percent of it's grown in the San Joaquin of California. And where is the
1: biggest market for that? Where does it go, most of that go?
3: Uh, good question. Most of it, uh, you know, we don't have a, basically don't have a textile industry in the United States anymore, a very small one. So most of it goes to China, uh, India, Pakistan, uh, where they make most of the textiles a lot of it goes into home products like sheets towels and things like that those are made g- generally in India Pakistan China but a lot of it goes to real fine apparel and again those that, that big textile industry is not in the U.S. it's mainly in Asia and South Asia um, uh, but everything from Bangladesh to Indonesia to used to be Japan. When I first started, Japan was our major customer, and they made very fine textiles. Japan and Switzerland were it too, but they are like the United States. They can't uh, compete uh, competitively against the Asia countries, so their textile industry is basically diminished also.
1: And a follow-up to this interview that we're going to have in a couple weeks is with the Kimes Ranch Amanda Kimes, are you familiar with them? No. So they make uh, blue jeans, Kimes Ranch blue jeans, and they were made in America until the Cone Textile shut down its plant. Yeah. And so we're going to have a follow up with them because their their whole state is it's going to be American made, and they're right here in Arizona. Yeah. Well, Wrangler just introduced uh, a new line of jeans. That's coming back to hundred percent American made as well, and we, uh, me personally, a couple years ago took a stance: it's going to be American made, or I'm not going to buy it. This shirt I had to order out of Houston Schaefer, Schaefer's Western Wear, to find a true American made Western shirt, and so all my all my shirts I order from Schaefer's because mm-hmm. Kimes doesn't make uh, American made shirt Western shirts. They have t-shirts, but not a nice collared. Uh, yeah. Denim, denim shirt so that'll be a follow-up and bringing what you know could possibly result in wrangler bringing a line of jeans back to america and not only just the cotton but the rivets it's going to be sewn in america you know everything from the cotton to the end product so we're, we're excited right. about that
3: yeah well the denim uh, industry is one that has somewhat maintained the uh, places in the u.s uh, they've done better than some of the other type fabrics, uh, but still a lot of it has moved offshore. Mm-hmm. Most of it has moved offshore.
1: Yeah, I got a preview of that when Rachel was in North Carolina and we went out to visit. And you just drive down any <laughs> any town and empty warehouse, empty warehouse, empty warehouse. And you know what, what were all these? It was oh. all the textile.
3: Yeah, every little t- town in North Carolina, South Carolina basically had a textile operation. Uh, very few of them left, and it's it's very sad. There are still a few, and there's uh, some very successful, but very few of them.
1: So here's something I didn't think about, and may not uh, be putting you on maybe putting you on the spot here. But you had mentioned cotton as one of the five C's. We've got citrus, cattle, copper, and climate behind those. When when were the five C's established? Boy, when, you
3: have <laughs> got me. I, I don't know. I I would say in probably in the. 20s or 30s. I'm I'm guessing, but I don't know. There's a lot yeah.
2: of people at Arizona Office of Tourism that now say there are seven seas. What are the other two? Cacti and oh. canyons. Huh? Oh, <laughs> the bringing in more tourism. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Grand Canyon yeah. most visited. Seven. Seven Cs. Mm-hmm. So I don't know.
1: Well, I tell you what. When we get cousins in from Louisiana, that's the first thing they want yeah, to see. Right. Where's the cactus? Show yeah, yeah, me that's the right. saguaros. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly right yeah well we enjoyed uh, having you on this saturday morning and sharing a little Thank bit you. more about the cotton industry here in arizona that uh it's still one of the five seas not as big a part as it used to be but you know they always say the farmer's most
3: profitable
1: crop is builders
2: <laughs> well
3: <laughs> that's right uh, houses have taken over a lot of farmland and since i've been here in the last 40 years
2: well it's down in pima county uh and Pinal County, um, where they were just on the very verge of losing their CAP allotment. And I guess that stage one rationing has been pushed back now, at least a year, year and a half, because of the snowfall in the Rockies this yeah. year. Yeah, And uh, Powell and the Colorado River and Green River and all that's, I guess, in pretty good shape. Yeah. But you talk about the price of water. I mean, Arizona's central arizona farmers are the first ones that lose the cap water so then we're going ground pumping and i mean you're only talking more expensive then more aren't expensive. you more expensive yeah
3: the, the the depth you have to go and the cost of putting in the wells and pumps and that is very expensive and it's controversial too yeah you know so they get into political situations with it so it's uh it's a tough situation and the one area where they have more adequate water is in the Yuma area. You know, they've got very uh, good water conditions there, and that agriculture is doing very well in Yuma. Not so much cotton. There is still some cotton there, but mainly, you know, the lettuce and yeah. those, those industries there. You
1: were talking about groundwater. Did you see Bruce Babbitt's column yesterday about I groundwater did, I pumping? I did not. No. It's, uh, I didn't. It's some pretty scary statistics. I mean, you hear what they talk about in rural area because uh, pumps and wells are big in rural Arizona, that, uh, communities that aren't on the CAP or aren't pumping directly out of Yuma. They anticipate Kingman could be out of groundwater in 55 years.
3: Hmm.
1: And then the Wilcox, the Sulphur Springs Valley, and the big community that they're looking to put up in Sierra Vista and that and I, controversy and I, I saw in the, the San Fe, Pedro the feds, River. The feds are still oh.
2: saying the, the 75,000 on the San Pedro River. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Water. Yeah. When you go look at the Casa Grande Indian ruins, I mean, that's the reason they moved on. <laughs> they, they built too big for the water supply they had, and— be interesting yeah. and, and you know that's uh, where the opportunity is opportunities in adversity and there's going to be an op- plenty of opportunities and there's uh some things coming out we're going to go tour it next week there is a thing a new device you can put on your roof oh yeah that yeah, condenses yeah. the moisture in it and filters it for your drinking water so mm. if everyone's drinking water suddenly started coming from just the moisture that's in the natural air what You know, what does that do to our water supply and relieving the pressure off of that? But then a lot of people ask, well, what happens when we make a dry Arizona air even drier? Drier. (laughs) What's the adverse effect of that? Mm -hmm. So interesting, interesting topic. Water in Arizona.
0: The Rosie on the House Arizona Hour, driven by Sanderson Ford.
1: Superstitions is not the only lost Dutchman mine in Arizona. There's another lost Dutchman mine in the Chimewavy Valley. Legend goes that the miner there, he had his priorities a little confused. And on his way back to his mine, stopped the needles, spent plenty of money on beer, forgot the water, and died of dehydration on the way back to his mine. Took years for them to find it, and at the time was the largest gold-producing mine of the time in the area. A You'll,
2: lot of a lot of lost Dutch people in Arizona. <laughs> I mean, were they what's what, the was, issue? Was Dutch
1: miners or you know, are they mining people? Or are they just digging the ground because it's warm and then they're like, "Hey, there's a lot of cool stuff in here." And, <laughs> what is it with Dutch and miners? We're we're gonna have to and put lost. Our, our yeah our research <laughs> team on that one. <laughs> Now, people say, you know, radio hosting isn't a real job. And, you know, I'll tell you another one that's not a real job. The tourism ambassador for the Nautical Beachfront Inn in Lake Havasu. That's not a real job. But we've got Joseph Gutierrez, who actually holds that position, on the line to talk to us about the Nautical Resort and the city of Lake Havasu. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? Very good, and uh, I've already sent my resume to your employer. So anytime you're ready to leave, I'm I'm ready to take your position. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, let me tell you, it's it's, uh, it's pretty rewarding, uh, um, really, being in the hospitality industry, especially as a tourism ambassador. It's it's always great to you know turn every positive uh, every guest experience into a positive encounter, and uh, it, it's it's truly rewarding just to see a smile on everyone's face, especially you know coming to Lake Havasu, such a beautiful city.
1: Talk about the setting of the nautical and the and the development history of it.
4: Of course. So, uh, as everyone, well, most people know, you know, in 1963, uh, McCulloch decided to start this. Uh, he purchased about 26 miles square uh, 20 miles, uh, which would later become Lake Havasu City. Uh, he built the Nautical Beachfront Resort, which would be the destination of choice for prospective buyers and. Uh, it's located right on the on the island um, and right on the water, of course, we're the only beachfront resort in Arizona. Uh, it was the prospective... Uh, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> it was the location of choice for prospective buyers uh, for Lake Havasu as, as residents. And uh, it was originally had 16 rooms and then uh, the dining room and a cocktail lounge as well. Uh, so at that time, it was very small, which I'm sure if you haven't seen, it's grown quite a bit. <laughs>
1: Y'all's website is immaculate, and you've got a uh, special for anyone that books out two weeks in advance, a 25% discount called the Early Turtle promotion that goes through, I think it was Halloween, if I remember right.
4: Yes, um, and we have restarted uh, uh, through our summer season. Uh, It's been one of our most popular uh, promotional rates as well.
1: Now, when it was originally built, because the roads weren't nearly what they are in the 60s as they are today— Rob even built an airport to bring people in.
4: He did. It uh, was about half a mile away from the Nautic Beachfront Resort that's uh, located on the island, which uh, now it's no longer in use. Uh, but yes, that was through his his uh, his air, airline, the McCulloch International Airlines, and he purchased. Uh, I want to say it was about eleven airplanes for these people to come in and stay at the resort.
1: So I know life in the hospitality is very demanding and you're always working to please people. But when you get a moment to escape and enjoy the town to yourself, what do you enjoy?
4: Honestly, I like being out on the water. Um, I like to uh, be down in the English Village, really. It's just such a spectacular sight. And the history of Lake Havasu alone just is so fascinating. And it makes me really just want to learn more about the community. And, And so, you know, being out on the water, being in the Bridgewater Channel, uh it's it's sort of relaxing trying to escape the uh the craziness of the hospitality industry to say the least <laughs>
1: <laughs> so to escape it you go enjoy it. the best of what Lake Havasu has to offer in hospitality
4: <laughs> absolutely
1: <laughs> now next week is a pretty big day next Saturday June 29th Lake Havasu will be celebrating The anniversary of the hottest day ever recorded in Arizona was recorded in Lake Havasu City, 128 degrees, and you got the hot for Havasu party.
4: That is correct, and uh, we are definitely looking forward to it. Uh, We're gearing up for that busy weekend, and uh, granted, we're hoping it doesn't get hot uh, (laughs) because, as you know, the the heat is extremely, extremely exhausting.
1: (laughs) It is, but you've got the water channel to enjoy it and uh, plenty of uh, water sports and activities. And right from the Nautical Beach front, you can walk to a number of different companies that offer uh, kayaks and paddle boards and boat rentals.
4: Absolutely. We do have the Nautical Water Sports Center on site. They do rent uh, all of that. Uh, We are somewhat walking distance from the London Bridge, about a mile away. Uh, I don't imagine a lot of people would in this heat, but hey, if you're brave enough.
1: <laughs> That's an early morning walk or, or the sunset oh, exactly. cruise walk.
4: <laughs> Definitely.
1: Well, thanks for taking a few minutes out of your Saturday morning to join us on air here and help uh, educate our Arizona listeners about the Lake Havasu City and the nautical beachfront resort it's you said it's arizona's only beachfront resort and the interesting thing about that that we've mentioned a few times is when you're out enjoying the views you actually get to look back at arizona all the other hotels in lake Havasu. if you're sitting there looking it's the river and you're looking at the california side but the way the peninsula comes around now an island that's been dredged you actually get to watch the sunset on arizona mountains